namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Aparuta de Sangamata Satawara Sodawanta Bamunjantu Satang. So it's nice to see so many people here. And uh, these uh, Sunday talks, uh, you call them rather than talks or anything, they're like reflections, uh, reflecting from my own experience. Uh, because it's not like teaching, teaching you about Buddhism, but sharing what I've learned uh, in my own life through the practice and development, uh, following the instructions of the Buddha. <clears throat> and the subject, uh, of course, is uh, patient endurance. And this is... Uh, this is a condition, uh, absolute necessity uh, for uh, for almost anything worth doing. Uh, patience is uh, something that is not greatly encouraged in modern life because we we like efficiency and like instant results. And <clears throat> I'm just noticing how, like uh, the internet and the computers, how you don't really have to wait for much anymore. You just don't have to go to the library. <laughs> you just use your somebody's laptop and they can find out almost anything you, you want to know about. <clears throat> and of course, when I went to stay with Ajahn Chah in Northeast Thailand, that was 1967, uh, that the main instruction he gave me for the first year was to develop patience, and I guess he could see that 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 was uh, something I lacked because <laughs> Americans were not noted for that virtue, and it's not uh, mentioned very much. You know, it's it's uh, it's not raised up in a high position in the in the psyche. <clears throat> Where in uh, Buddhist Buddhism, of course, it's a very, very uh, important virtue, paramita, uh, to develop. Because without it, then of course we we find life endlessly frustrating and difficult. <clears throat> and of course, forbearance also is uh, it means uh, to be able to bear with uh, disappointment, sadness, and pain, and not getting what you want and your life going in the wrong way and you're f being deserted or betrayed by your friends or whatever. <laughs> these, these are all part of everyone's life experience to a certain degree. Uh, so that we uh, have to endure, forbear, endure and be patient. <clears throat> now the modern life, you know, I was brought up with the more of the uh, Cinderella story, you know, of finding everything, the right person and living happily ever after. And uh, there's the idea of that life should be happy and we should, <clears throat> you know, find, uh, have a very positive, uh, optimistic view of it. And so there's, there's so much emphasis in the American society anyway that I grew up in on, on being happy and that if you weren't happy, that you were mentally sick or something was wrong with you. <clears throat> so there was a lot of, I mean, it was in the 40s and 50s, the pop songs were, uh, you know, always smile when you're miserable. <laughs> <laughs> Under, on the other side of every rain cloud is a silver lining. So that is, uh, you know, the kind of, um, cheer, cheer up when life is, is to be enjoyed attitude, which I'm not 
against. You know, I'm not trying to to um, just knock it down, but also it's not to be believed in because life is uh, for each one of us. We have our own individual problems to deal with, our own peculiar karmas. We have our our national karmas, our religious and racial and generation. I mean, everything uh, is not going to be, uh, you know, what we want and what we even expect from life. But one thing can be sure, it is the way it is in the present moment. <clears throat> and so, a lack of patience always implies this sense of uh, time. Time is our reality. And, of course, this is, uh, you know, the society, modern society, is very much uh, considering time as reality. You know, we have our diaries, calendars, clocks, and so forth that we follow. <coughs> we religiously follow. And, and even I, I resisted it when I first came to live in England, uh, but I had to give in to it. <laughs> so... I have my diary and my calendar, and then an innumerable clocks people give me. <laughs> but the uh, patience is is always, you know, trying to. You can imagine what you'd like and and the, the end result, or you know, when you want something, then you you can conceive of the goal or the ideal of getting it, but then. Uh, that's that's in the mind, which moves very quickly. But then we have to wait for the conditions to happen, which can be very difficult, very slow. So uh, then we become impatient, or we give up, or we just get angry. Uh, and if we never investigate this feeling and and lack of patience in ourselves, then of course. Uh, we have never really understand the purpose of our life or how to live it properly. Because I know uh, most of you who have had the uh, opportunity to be parents uh, must, you know, recognize the importance of patient endurance. <laughs> More so than I think anyone else. <laughs> and this is, uh, because this is a, a quality that is necessary, you know, with children raising, uh, giving birth, raising children. And yet the society is not that way. And the society we live in is about, uh, you know, getting what you want and efficiency and, and getting what you want as quickly as possible. And of course we can see at this time the, the economic crash and the, uh, all the problems that the economy has has experienced these past several years is because of a lack of patience. And there was this uh, kind of, uh, call it illusion, that, that the whole world seemed to get caught up into the progress, the economic bubble, and, uh, and you can get what you want uh, before you even have the money. Uh, you, <laughs> you just want it, and, and somehow, you know, you can find the means to get it. And then, of course, many people have suffered enormously through... Uh, you know, through loss of their homes or uh, things that have of great importance to them in their lives, that were bought in this in this ideal of getting what you want uh, as as soon as possible or immediately. <clears throat> in meditation, the uh, meditation is as most of you who've ever attempted meditation probably realize is is uh, you know always frustrating this desire to get a, a good result and uh, it's uh, you know we can understand the instructions usually it's presented so that it it sounds quite simple it is quite simple in its essence and in its explanation but in the practice of course uh, you can imagine a, a state of mind that is peaceful where your uh, negative uh, feelings, emotions, problems drop away and you're in a state of bliss. But for most of us, uh, when we practice formal meditation, 
especially the first few years, is, uh, is we seldom get these moments of bliss and peace because of the rapidity of our thoughts and, and our emotional habits that seem to uh, take, uh, take us over, you know, even in a meditation hall. So I remember this cartoon years ago, I think in some journal, Buddhist journal, where they had this, this uh, kind of cartoon of somebody sitting in lotus posture beginning to meditate. And then uh, the figure could be male or female sitting there, and then the, then the, the one cartoon says, think, think. And then the next picture, think, 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 think. And then by the end, the, it's think, 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 think through the whole body. <laughs> and most of us found that uh, we could relate to that. <laughs> and so the thinking process, recognize how, how fast thinking is. Thinking is, uh, you know, a very rapid condition. And, um, and of course it's a proliferating condition. You start with with some stimulation to think a certain thing and then it proliferates on through memory, through emotion, <clears throat> through the conditions that are supporting it in the present. And, and of course we're a thinking society. Sometimes, you know, I, I feel that Western society has, has promoted thinking as the kind of great achievement of humanity. Like, uh, especially not just any kind of thinking, but analysis, scientific thought, reason, and logic. It's kind of the summum bonum of human existence. Like somebody who really can think rationally, reasonably, uh, is probably, you know, the, the ultimate in, in our society. And of course, being able to think is a great gift, but also, if we have no perspective on thinking, if we're just caught in the proliferating habits of thought, uh, then of course we, we become victims of our own thought, and they become repetitious, they become obsessed. We suffer all kinds of mental stress and, uh, from just the, the rapidity and anxiety that we create through worrying about the future, or regretting, feeling guilty about the past. Uh, how even in the midst of a uh, paradisical situation on a holiday, you can be obsessed with regret or remorse or guilt about something you said just before you left home, or <laughs> worrying about, did you switch off the electricity? Or <laughs> and one can ruin one's holiday by just being obsessed with something uh, about the past or the future while you're in maybe some beautiful tropical paradise. And uh, this is, most of us have found, you know, when, even when we try to escape the hurly-burly, the rush and fuss of daily life and the pressures of society going off to some idyllic setting, how we can carry with us uh, that, those kind of habits, obsessive habits that can take us over even under the most benign conditions, <clears throat> most pleasant situations. So, in many ways, the human species, we're, we're haunted by our own minds. I mean, we, we have to live in this state, uh, within this human form, in the, on this planet, for a lifetime with this kind of mental uh, conditioning with, without much perspective on it. I never really understood thinking as a, as a function so much as just, it's, I always was thinking about thinking or thinking about not thinking or thinking, trying to think positively about life and suppressing uh, negative thinking, or getting caught up in negative thinking, being miserable and, and wallowing in my misery, and, and feeling of uh, despair or depression that would, I could create through thinking about the disappointments or the betrayals or 
my own inadequacies uh, in regards to what I see and remember in my life. Also, I notice uh, so many people are, uh, you know, uh, very uh, tyrannical in their minds toward themselves, very self-disparaging. So that uh, this seems to be quite common in this society to to see mainly to emphasize you know, the flaws, the weaknesses, the faults that you see in yourselves, or emphasize the the things you've done wrong in your life. Uh, we can blame ourselves, and and uh, that kind of uh, obsession, of course, uh, carries through into you know old age, feeling of of not being good enough, not being worthwhile because we made mistakes or did things that we shouldn't have or whatever and then we and we can be obsessed really fixed on that through a lifetime and that's why we need to go to psychotherapists and <laughs> and because we, we we want to know you know is there something to do about this habit I've, I've noticed in my own life, you know, that so much of my emotional tendencies were formed when I were in, in the formative years of life, when I was a, a small child. Uh, and as I grew older, of course, you, you, you tended to, uh, you know, be quite embarrassed by some of the childish reactions you could have uh, toward life, which you learned how to hide or cover up or try not to let anybody know. But you could still feel, you know, sense of not getting what you want, feel like, you know, sulking. I could see some, uh, you know, a tendency in me when, not, I, when I don't get what I want, I want to, there's an inner movement to sulk about it. <laughs> <laughs> and when somebody I feel hasn't conducted themselves properly and I feel betrayed by them, I don't want to speak to them anymore. <laughs> the, do you have any similar feelings? <laughs> and, and of course, this is this is uh, these are probably you know emotional habits that I developed developed in childhood, in early childhood. My mother tells me very embarrassing stories about how I embarrassed her by throwing tantrums in, in public. <laughs> so this, but then in meditation, what the value of this perspective, what we call meditation, is we're not, it's not about thinking or rearranging your thoughts or uh, being positive about life or trying to, to improve your personality, but to get perspective on what you think you are, the perceptions, the, the um, emotional tendencies, habits that you have, the memories and the, and the thinking process uh, that you have, and not to criticize it, not to put in terms of, of you, shouldn't have, you shouldn't react like that, or you should grow up and not sulk or throw tantrums or things like this, but it's about more or less observing. So this observing ability is the, is the essence of Buddha, Buddha's teaching. It's this mindfulness. It's the only way we have to get perspective on the thinking mind and on the emotional habits that we have at the same moment. So we can call it intuitive awareness, intuition. It's not something you, you cultivate through through uh, thinking or through theories, it's innate in us. But somehow it becomes, it's become almost rejected or mistrusted or, or not noticed, not given any importance in our lives because we have, you know, modern education is all about uh, passing examinations and, and acquiring knowledge and being able to regurgitate knowledge and think creatively and and um, with reason and logic and acquire information and be able to, to uh, reproduce it. 
uh, and then uh, that gives us a that's what we we're used that's what we're educated for that's what our conditioning amounts to now religious religious life now in this time I notice in here in Britain there's so much uh, you know investigation into what is religion about and, you know it's quite a, a, an interesting time to live here because um, you know it has uh, a strong religious tradition before Christianity I was uh, you know you look at the you know don't have to travel very far on the British Isles to come across dolmens and and various other forms of religious endeavors before Christianity ever appeared in the world. And last week, uh, last Monday, I was uh, had this opportunity to go to the Skelligs, Skellig Michael, off the southwest coast of Ireland. This amazing island rock, where about twelve kilometers from uh, Kerry, County Kerry where these monks, 6th century Christian monks, Celtic monks, built a monastery, built a kind of hermitage on top of this incredible rock. It's an island out in the sea and uh, it's all jagged rocks and they built these, what they call beehive hermitages. They're they're shaped like a beehive made out of rocks and they still exist and they built walls and it lived. It took five hours for them to row to the mainland, <clears throat> and they must have lived on moss and fish and puffins. <laughs> <laughs> They're a lot tougher than we are here. <laughs> I felt slightly embarrassed calling myself a monk when I was there because. But it is, you know, the, the modern life and, and the, the modern society does, it's very idealistic and it, and it also is impatient. You know, it's trying to, this idea of progress, desire to, to get something, uh, make everything right, straighten out all the, the wrinkles, uh, set everybody straight, give them the right form of government, you know, the, invade Iraq and give them good old American democracy. <laughs> you know, don't wait, but just invade and, and make them Democrats like the Americans are. And of course this has been a disaster because <laughs> no patience and of course we suspect there were other motives. It wasn't even that, you know, because the Americans aren't that, high, are that stupid. But they, they certainly, you know, that was one of the uh, reasons for, uh, you know, getting rid of a horrendous tyrant and putting in the, the proper democratic system. Like living in Thailand, I noticed. Uh, I went there to live in 1966. And for the first few months I taught in the university in Bangkok, in Thomasat University, taught English. And that they gave me students who were, who had been to American high schools and had already a, a quite a good uh, command of English. Uh, and they wanted me to just have, like, talk with them to develop their ability to understand conversations. So it was quite fun because, you know, could, they were young uh, university students. Uh, could speak English quite well, and uh, they were quite, you know, bright, uh, beautiful-looking people. And uh, and I asked, and I, of course, I had when my university days, I was in Berkeley, which was University of California, which was uh, a center for discontentment <laughs> and protest. <laughs> and you you felt obliged to protest everything. And at Thomasat University in Bangkok in 1966, they were the most docile university students I've ever met. <laughs> and they didn't have one rebellious streak in them that I could detect. And I asked them what their goal in life was, and they said, 
to finish the university, get a good job, and help support our parents. And that never occurred to me as a goal at all. <laughs> never, never thought of it even as a possibility. And, uh, and of course, at the time in 1966, Thailand uh, was under a military dictatorship. So, so they had, uh, you know, in, in every shop, they had the pictures of these two generals, you know, big portraits of these two uh, uh, impressive-looking uh, gen army generals <coughs> in the train stations, in the shops, everywhere. And, uh, and of course, it was, I wasn't politically inclined anyway, I, and it was still, you know, Thailand under military dictatorship for, for my life didn't really affect me very much. Uh, because I could, of course, come and go as I wanted. But the, the university students, they, they didn't mention the, the, or complain about the dictatorship. And so I thought, well, maybe I'd better not, uh, you know, I could get a bad name if I stirred up things. <laughs> so I was, I was more on a spiritual quest, and, and I chose Thomasat University because then, it was across the street from one of the main temples where I could go and meditate in the afternoon. So I had my own agenda. I'm not a, a, a revolutionary. But then, of course, uh, you know, democracy was a word that was in the vocabulary. And, uh, but it wasn't, you know, like foremost in the consciousness of people at that time in Thailand, at least what, who I met. And when I went to live in the Northeast, which was, uh, you know, Bangkok was the more like the cosmopolitan center uh, of Thailand, but the Northeast was very kind of backcountry, uh, out of the way, most undeveloped part of Thailand. And so I lived with just village people for 10 years or so, with mainly uh, like peasants, rice growing people who, who just uh, were good Buddhists and had their own kind of cultural value. The, <clears throat> the dictatorship in Bangkok didn't seem to influence them terribly. They did have, while I was there during those 10 years, uh, there were several revolutions, but in Northeast Thailand, where I live, you would hardly have known anything happened. <clears throat> so, this is, uh, you know, the, and the Thais also in Northeast Thailand, being uh, of a different time, a different generation, uh, um, not being where education uh, was so important, where they, most of them only had very little education. Uh, many were illiterate. But they did have uh, a, a cultural integrity that I quite appreciated, and it, and it was based on Buddhism. And of course, with living with somebody like Ajahn Chah, he was, uh, he was a very fine monk, very strong leader of people, so he had a very good influence on the surrounding villages that, that would look to our monastery, to his monastery, for guidance. So I came across uh, you know, something that was completely new to me, but, for, but quite old. I never met, never lived in such a situation. And then training as a Buddhist monk uh, in a very conservative tradition. It was a totally new experience because you know, Americans, we, we are kind of against tradition. We, we think uh, we, we always want to rebel against tradition and restraint. We want freedom and, and we want to express ourselves and make demands. And, uh, but in monastic training, it was all about surrendering, conforming. Uh, and then the point was not through, uh, uh, it wasn't a tyrannical system, like the monastery wasn't, uh, the Ajahn Chah wasn't a tyrant by any means. But the, the, the importance of the training was not to endlessly try to improve or change the, the structure that you're living in, but to observe yourself develop that intuitive awareness, uh, which I found very revealing to me during those 10 years I lived in Northeast Thailand. Because I, could, I, I would never have seen so clearly the, the, uh, 
the power of my habits in such clarity without, you know, such a clear reflection and encouragement where our life was very much aimed at mindfulness, <clears throat> reflection on things rather than on trying to improve and make things better and, and rebel against the system and, and uh, develop, you know, uh, trying to work toward better ideal monastery. <clears throat> In those days, uh, Wat Ba Pong was, wasn't so famous. Uh, and, uh, and, and at that time also, they, Northeast Thailand, uh, they were building roads. But it wasn't a very, you know, the infrastructure of Thailand in those days was not very good. So they had a train uh, that took 12 hours to, from Bangkok to Ubon. And we had to sit on, on board. They didn't even have uh, padded seats for 12 hours sitting on a train going across Thailand. <laughs> it takes, you know, this was... Um, it, one, it, it, to survive this train ride, you had to develop patience. <laughs> and then we also had to, to uh, develop, uh, you know, every week we had to sit up all night long. We had what they call nesachik water practice once a week where we would, we would have to sit up till dawn and then, then uh, go on uh, arms round and, and you're just always fighting against or feeling sleepy and tired and it brings up so many negative emotions. And of course, on a practical level, I, could, I was, became very critical of this. I said, this is not good for my health. It just makes me grumpy. And <laughs> I could explain, you know, all the reasons why we shouldn't be doing this. But somehow, you know, I didn't dare <laughs> complain about it because nobody else did, so I just did it. And then, then also, I, you know, the emphasis on mindfulness, being aware of what does come up in your mind, of the, of the feelings, the emotions, uh, <clears throat> and in your body, mind and the body, to be the observer. And so trying to get results, remember trying to to get uh, so much emphasis that the Western world had when I lived in Bangkok, like the expatriate Buddhists that, that I'd meet in Bangkok before I became a monk, <clears throat> where they were always uh, talking about attaining, like becoming a stream enterer, um, attaining the jhanas, uh, these levels of concentration. So we would read the scriptures in the Visuddhimagga and these books with a Western attitude toward attainment. And so, you know, I read uh, Majima Nikaya before I ever ordained. And I must say, it, after several years of meditation, I reread it, and it was very different than what I... <laughs> did it change or I did? <laughs> but anyway, I, you know, all, all I had was a Western-trained mind, Western attitude, uh, that could, uh, you know, understand the words, the translations of the Majima Nikaya into English from Pali, could understand the words. But, you know, it didn't, it was just an intellectual thing, and, and I didn't quite get the profundity or the meaning of it. It was merely, uh, you know, the best, I could say that some of it inspired me, some of it I couldn't fathom at all. Then in, uh, in, in the um, expatriate Buddhist world, it was the aim was to get something, get somewhere. Get the most you can out of Buddhism. Find some place where you can get the most, where you can get enlightened quickly. <laughs> and, and get concentration, get jhanas, get and attain. And this, of course, was... Uh, the way I thought also, this was just natural according to the way my mind was conditioned. So, um, I, you know, this is what I was trying to do. But in the, one reason why I stayed with Ajahn Chah for, you know, there was 10 years, I, I stayed with him. I would have stayed longer if he hadn't sent me off to England. But, 
was because uh, he he changed my attitude and this this desire to attain and achieve and get somewhere and be somebody and and uh, was was challenged all the time because our life wasn't uh, like some of you might think our life was very much like sitting in meditation for hours on end and and um, you know like very like extreme uh, forms of meditation practices uh, that we did continuously day and night for years and years. But I found living with Ajahn Chah was we did most of our days caught up in work. And I've never, you know, been very good at building. But during those years I learned to lay bricks and render bricks and uh, uh, menial chores like carrying water from wells on bamboo poles and and sweeping the ground. I learned how to, to make, to sew robes and how to dye robes in ancient... They, Ajahn Chah wouldn't even allow modern dyes for, for years. We all had to use these uh, old-fashioned uh, jackfruit natural dyes, which takes a long time, takes hours and several days to, to get this color. And then um, what the poem in those days was um, the, the main uh, city in that is Ubon, which is the, the kind of provincial capital. And then across the river from Ubon city is another big town called Warin. And then uh, Wat Pong was about 12, 15 kilometers from Warin. And so, and then the, the roads were, were just dirt roads. So we had to, you know, people in the rainy season couldn't get there in cars unless they had four-wheel drive. And Ajahn Chah was uh, trying to keep it in this very primitive level, you know, because when there were a lot of people interested in trying to modernize Wat Pong, and uh, he would always be slowing it down. Like we we had to one of our duties every day was to draw water from a well, and so we had several wells, and then we we had to uh, they had pulleys on. That was the, mo- the modern technology that Ajahn Chah allowed, and we had uh, kerosene tins. Kerosene comes in big tins like this, and you would put these on on a rope and lower it down fill it up with water, and then, you know, several monks would pull on the rope. And, uh, and so this was, so if you wanted water all by yourself, you know, to, to do this was quite arduous, all on your own. Usually the whole emphasis was on everybody working together, helping each other. Of course, this was something totally to me, new to me, because I'm from the, you know, where you learn to take care of yourself and not worry about the others. And Ajahn <laughs> Chah was, was trying to get us all to help each other, even for the simple task of getting a glass of water. And so this was, I, so I asked him about this, you know, because, uh, people from the town would offer to uh, buy um, pumps, you know, where you could just pump the water up and and Pochon said, no, if, if we get pumps, the monks will become lazy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so now they have pumps, but for years, for the years I lived there, they didn't. And then the, the road to Wat Bapong was impassable during the rainy season. And now they have nice paved tarmac roads all over Thailand. You see, modern progress takes care of itself. And what Pong now has become very kind of modern and, you know, it's, it's not like that, but it was like it was when I first went there. But it was interesting to live like that because it did develop patience. And you had to, to work as a community. You were involved with each other in the very basics of just uh, food and and uh, drink, and uh, you're totally dependent on uh, others for food, and then you you take whatever shelter is is made available to you. So you learn how to to.
to just, uh, you know, instead of always trying to get better things uh, or trying to improve or modernize, Lung Pa Cha wanted us to see, to observe this, this desire that makes us restless and unhappy and, and, uh, and drives us always to try to, to be efficient and, and improve and on what we have already and to and for the sake of progress. Now this is just to reflect on this, like the word progress. Uh, what what is your how does that word affect you? You know, like we, we people have criticized us here for not, for not because we're not progressive in the sense that that we think the West is somehow progress beyond just an ancient tradition from India and that we should modernize Theravada Buddhism so it's in in line with uh, modern attitudes of progress and and all the rest that goes along with that. <clears throat> so that uh, because this seems logical it seems the right thing to be doing to to try to improve uh, there's a strong tendency for Westerners to think they can improve Buddhism. So, uh, <laughs> so we're gonna, <laughs> I've heard this from many, you know, how to improve, make it more modern, more useful, more up-to-date. Uh, the attitude of wanting to spread Buddhism, like we're missionaries and we're here to convert everybody to Buddhism and uh, and to, you know, to write books, and, and now it's all over websites and everything as we, you know, I have a website I've never even looked at. <laughs> Honestly, I've never seen the website. If you look for, I think, Ajahn Sumato or something, you will find one. So you, you don't even have that much control anymore. <laughs> but, uh, and this is like, this is progressive. And in some ways, it's, it's kind of magical and wonderful. You know, the way information about Buddhism is available now to everybody all over the world. And we get letters from remote parts of the planet, you know, people who, who uh, found our name here at Amravati through, through a website. You know, from some remote part of Argentina or someplace, you know, suddenly you find somebody wanting more information or get their newsletter or whatever. Now that's, that's, that's very good, it's not to, to uh, criticize it, but also what I'm trying to do is reflect on the dangers of, of efficiency and progress because uh, it does create this sense of, of that we've got to get something, make it better, rather than observing this tendency in ourselves observing uh, the way our mind tends to be discontented uh, and critical of the way it is. Uh, here in, in England, I've lived in, in the UK now for 34 years, and I've never seen people really content with the governments that exist. <laughs> and comparatively speaking, you know, even the worst government that I've experienced here during 34 years is not that bad. <laughs> so, uh, we're compared to others, uh, other countries. So, I mean, it, it is, uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a powerful emotion that we have of, of not being in the present, not knowing what we're feeling, but always looking for uh, something we don't have, which creates this impatience. And of course, economic progress. You know, if a Buddhist would say, well, of course, you, you get an uh, economic bubble, you, everything goes kind of marvelously, everybody's getting, everything's getting better, better and better, but it has to reach a peak. It can't just get better and better. It's, that's not the way things are. Uh, and so then when they reach their peak then they go the other way they get worse and worse 
to to a Buddhist who's meditated on the Dhamma, then we we're quite aware of this, you know, of this changingness, and how you know you you can't just be happy uh, and and have that emotion all the time. It reaches a peak and then it goes uh, the other way. You can't stay interested in something and sustain it for for a long time. You, you reach a peak and then you become disinterested in what you were interested in before. In relationships, we think, you know, the Cinderella story, Prince Charming, Shoe Fits, Live Happily Ever After, but as all of you know, you know, relationships, they start out maybe inspiration, romantic, and they get up to a peak and then they start going the other way. <laughs> now, <laughs> the honeymoon's over and that kind of thing. But this is, this is uh, just the natural pattern of conditioned phenomena. It's, you know, it's not your fault or anyone's fault. And this is where mindfulness allows us to observe this, you know, in our minds. It just We don't have to see it on such a vast scale as universal uh, expansion and contraction, but just on the thinking, emotional habits that we have within ourselves. Plus the the, the condition of our physic, physical condition, the aging process, is teaching us all the time, you know, about the way things are. And that, that happiness, its counterpart is, is suffering. <clears throat> so you have, in the terms of the thinking process, is what we call dualistic. So if you have happiness, then automatically you have unhappiness along with it. They go together. And uh, you have birth and then death. You know, so birth and then what was born will die. And what begins ends. We call this uh, cause and effect or law of karma. Uh, in Buddhist meditation you're always observing a nicha or impermanence of your breath, of how one one, the, in, the inhalation reaches a peak and then the, then the exhalation takes place. So in, in this way it's intuitive, it's not, it's not just rational, it's observing just with simple things like breathing or, or emotions, they arise and they cease. So you feel, you feel anger rising and then if you're patient with the feeling of anger or unhappiness you can actually if you're patient and endure the, the feeling and, and let it be what it is, it will cease and you'll be aware of its absence of non-anger. So this is what patient forbearance allows us, gives us this perspective to understand the way things are in the realm that we're experiencing so intensely through the body and through the senses. Otherwise we don't know what who we are or what life is about. We're merely caught in the programs that we've developed or been uh, instilled in us from birth. We kind of help as victims of them. And, and then we wonder what life is about. Uh, and then we maybe, many people nowadays feel so despairing or disappointed with their lives because they're expecting much more than what they have. And then old age, it's not, you know, it's, we, you hear, I hear on science programs and that they've, they've found ways now of stopping the aging process, and they hope that they can prevent us <coughs> from getting old. Well, it's too late for me. <laughs> <laughs> but some of these monks probably can stay young and looking for a much longer time but the <laughs> but the uh, but this is uh, you know this is the idea of old age as uh, somehow uh, you know something we should conquer or get rid of or death rather than understand so this now we get to this word understanding and this of course uh, it's a common enough word in English, but it, it's a profound understanding. It's not just understanding the meaning of words or ideas or concepts. 
It's, uh, you know, like what we say, a gut kind of knowledge. It comes from insight, from really investigating and knowing, you know, the way things are. Uh, and of course, what you, what you investigate and reflect on is what you have, you know, the way you are, your body, your, your conditioning, your emotions, your memories, thoughts, tendencies, good, bad, right or wrong. It's no matter, no matter a, a, a critical uh, attitude that you're having about how you should or shouldn't be. You're taking a position, what we call transcendent or the knowing position, intuitive knowing, witnessing, observing, how, you know, that which arises ceases. You're aware of its presence. And with patient endurance, then, and you're not just reacting and trying to control, get rid of, or follow, then you also, with patience and forbearance, you'll you see it cease. You'll observe its cessation. What is it, then, that observes? You know, this observing is not, uh, it's, it's not a, it's no longer something you, you, you learn from somebody else. It's, it's what we call intuitive intelligence operating through these forms. And we can, be, we can recognize this great gift that we have only through awareness of it. It's not something you can, you can take and show to anyone. It doesn't, people, uh, you know, we all sense it, we all feel it, but we don't understand it when we try to describe it or define it. And of course, uh, consciousness, the word consciousness now is, is, uh, is a big subject in psychology and psychiatry and science. You know, it's, uh, what is consciousness? And you hear this, you know, a lot in modern, uh, in, the, in the Western world. And consciousness, of course, is, is here and now, we're all conscious, aren't we? Anyone here not conscious? <laughs> and then, uh, so it's it's not something that that we have to define or or find out what other what scientists say about consciousness, but to to observe. Consciousness allows us to observe conditioned phenomena. We can through through mindfulness, then we can. Uh, and f mindfulness with patient forbearance and endurance, we began to observe, uh, be the knower, conscious knower of conditioned phenomena. And then that puts us into this, the, these symbols of Buddha knowing Dhamma. So this is kind of basic uh, in Buddhist terminologies, Buddha Dhamma Sangha, uh, and it's, it's no longer, uh, you know, personal. It's not a personal quality. Uh, it's not Ajahn Sumato knowing the Dhamma or Ajahn Sumato's opinion about Buddhism. Because <laughs> 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 then that can get, you know, that comes from a different place. That's not the way I experience it, not through Ajahn Sumato and what I think about Buddhism, but it's, it's through the practice of mindfulness, getting to recognize and value, appreciate this ability that we have to observe the way things are. So Dhamma is the way things are. It's reality itself. So I, you know, I think, what's the real world? What's real? And this is real, awareness, consciousness with awareness and wisdom. Then we, we're within these very limited forms that we have, our human forms, and our conditioned habits and tendencies, this is the, this is the way that we can escape just being helpless victims of conditioned, uh, you know, emotional conditions or the conditions of the world and planetary life that we have to experience. Because then we, we can see, what we, we have this chart, I've introduced here at Amarvati in the past year, 
that we have in our chanting book now, ati bhikkhu ajatang aputang akatang asankadang, that there is bhikkhus, the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. And so I always, this fascinated me. It's a statement, this is a fact. It's not just an abstract, you know, an idea. I think, you know, it's probably a state or a non-state, uh, non-conditioned, you know, where you get your, your, your brain into a twist, trying to verbalize something that is beyond words. So, but it is reality itself. So, so that this mindfulness that is emphasized, that is the essence of, of Buddha Dhamma, is the way to, to contact that, to recognize, to understand. Amravati, the deathless realm, or whatever, not the monastery, the deathless realm. <laughs> I don't understand the monastery, but then. <laughs> <laughs> deathless realm is is something is is reality itself. Now, don't believe this is not to be taken as dogma, you know, or or my pronouncements, because it's not personal, but it is realizable, and that that each one of us has that potential to realize truth, ultimate reality, to recognize it. It's our true nature. And, and when that is realized, then we have perspective on the conditions that we have to live with. Whatever, you know, their qualities might be. Good, bad, right or wrong, happy or unhappy. So, this is, you know, in meditation, is willing to, not just to, it's not like, I used to consider like sitting up all night on these observance nights in Thailand, a form of torture. I used to think Ajahn Chah liked to torture us. <laughs> I, I suspected him of being a sadist sometimes. <laughs> and, and so I, because I found it torture, I didn't like doing it at all. And, um, so then, you know, you're thinking, well, this isn't necessary. The, the Buddha said in his first sermon, it's the middle way. It's between asceticism and sensory indulgence. So Ajahn Chah is, is going towards the ascetic side. He's too ascetic. <laughs> and then I could hear my own complaining, opinionated, arrogant feeling. <laughs> And I realized he wasn't asking me to do anything dangerous. It's just something I didn't like doing at all. <laughs> and so that was what was important. You know, that's what he was pointing at. What he was helping me to see was uh, my own, you know, how the suffering I create onto the, the restriction, the forms, the tradition, uh, and, and the way I had to live. If I was going to live at that monastery, I had to follow and live like that. And then, uh, then that would, of course, bring up resistance and stubbornness and all kinds of emotions that I had, being from a different culture, which was very much do what you want, you know, no boundaries, just follow your heart wherever, and, uh, and then you're in a traditional. Theravada Monastery in Northeast Thailand where it's all conforming. Well, both are, one is a structure, you know, that it doesn't give you boundaries, it has no boundaries, it's just follow desire. And then the, the Theravada Monastery, Ajahn Chah's Monastery was frustrating that tendency, but, and, but not just to torture us or because we're we have a, a, a kind of uh, something against happiness and desire and sensory pleasure, but in order to observe, to give us limitation for uh, on action and speech too, be the observer of our minds, of our feelings. 
as we live within structures that we may not particularly like or agree with. But we, we, we have volunteered to live within that structure. Then the, then the aim is to observe. And of course that takes patient endurance. So in the title it says, uh, patient endurance, a critical quality. And I'm not quite sure whether it means critical in the sense of criticizing <laughs> or it's necessary. I mean, critical can mean absolutely necessary. <laughs> well, I think that's probably the better meaning. Because, <laughs> you know, mindfulness isn't critical. It's not, it doesn't, it's not about criticizing or saying what's wrong and right. But it's observing both wrong and right. It's where you get perspective on the conditions of your thoughts and emotions and physical experiences. So now it, the uh, tea has uh, appeared on the server. Thank you, Lada. <laughs> and, uh, I'll always go away here from here. Uh, always thinking of. Kunlada, who's, <laughs> who's been doing this ever since we came to this place. So, the kind of uh, generosity extended to the Sangha here and to all of us uh, to make these afternoons uh, enjoyable. So I'll stop here and then you have a cup of tea and in uh, 20 minutes or so, if you're interested, you can reassemble and have discussion. <laughs>